Good morning. My name is Dan. It's my privilege to open up God's Word with you. We're going to be in First Thessalonians chapter one. Uh, in your church Bible, look for Second Thessalonians and then go backwards one book, and you're there. Uh, Ryan, I really appreciate your word. Uh, where's Ryan? Where did he go? Did he run? <laughs> uh, but I appreciate it's I appreciated Ryan's word very timely given the subject matter today of growth. Uh, indeed, even in this church, I've seen lots of growth. I've seen uh, even globally little pockets of really cool things happening. And and um, and when we look at the entire world, the global church is growing. We've actually got missionaries from China coming here. But in America, I don't think the growth is um, happening as broadly as, as I think a lot of us would like. So there's 250,000 Protestant churches in America. 250,000. And of those 250,000, 200,000 are what you would call stagnant. Stagnant means either you are growing a little bit, but not enough to keep up with population growth, or not growing at all, or going down. And um, I've I've spoken at a at a bunch of churches over the years, and sadly most of them fall into one of these uh, categories of being little or no growth or declining. And I've noticed one thing that all of them have in common. None of them are happy about it, and yet none of them know what to do next. I wish I could have familiarized myself even more with today's text because I would have known what to tell them. As far as today's text, we've been spending the last two weeks building up to it. We've been giving you taste after taste of our sermon series called Paul, the Apostle Paul, from beginning to end. And now we are finally here at the beginning. First Thessalonians. Paul has planted the church in Thessalonica and it's thriving. It's growing. Other churches are noticing it and following its example. And even more so, the rest of the world is starting to pay attention. Who are these Christians? But the means of their growth might seem surprising. The church members are being afflicted. And the word afflicted can be very generic. So I want to be clear and explain it before we move on, because I will be using this word a lot this morning. When I say affliction, I don't mean things like sickness. I don't mean things like church uh, disunity or, or arguments or, or, or depression or anything like that. When I say afflicted, and when Paul says afflicted, he means the people inside this church are being hurt and persecuted by people outside of the church. 
Due to the time of this writing, it wouldn't be out of the question to assume some are even being killed. And how would you feel if this was your first church plan? I'll tell you how Paul is feeling. He's delighted. He's delighted, not in a not in a sick way. He's delighted, and we're going to spend a lot of time explaining why he's delighted. It's because he knows a secret. The secret I wish I would have shared with all those churches I visited. Affliction is not an obstacle to church growth. Affliction is how the church grows. People can actually mature through it. And and most importantly, and this is where we're going to begin today's text, the occurrence of this affliction is not evidence that they or we are doing Christianity wrongly. Because that's real easy to think. This text is actually evidence for them and for us that God has chosen them, that they're on the right track. In other words, for Christians, as I'm saying, affliction is a milestone to be celebrated rather than an obstacle to be avoided. And if that sounds like upside-down thinking to you, it should. It should. Peter last week rightfully called the gospel upside down when compared to the world. And my hope is this morning is that you will be turned at least a little more upside down. Or if you already are, you stay there. Because that's God's good plan for the gospel. Here's a flow of thought we're going to follow in this letter and on your outline. If God has chosen you, point one. And point two, your faith, hope, and love will thrive. And in parentheses, especially through affliction. So first, if God has chosen you. This is Paul writing to a church that he misses very much. I'll read verses one through five. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, and in full conviction, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. So Paul starts things very warmly. This is like a kind of like a father writing to his kids. Look at all the, the language. We remember you. We love you. We pray for you. We think about you. We thank God always, always for all of you. And he speaks well of them. In the same way some of us might open a letter right before we ask somebody for a favor. But if you read closely, he speaks well of them, but it's not because they're great. 
though they have done great things. Look at verse 4. We thank God for you, and we pray for you, and we think of all the good things you have done. Why? For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. We thank God for you, not because of the good things you've done, but because God has chosen you, and the outward fruit is all these good things. And I know there's a, there's a comma after this little phrase I just read, but let's pause for a moment. I want to define something essential, the word chosen. Because when I think of the word chosen, I think I choose sausage rather than bacon. Or bacon rather than sausage, depending on the day. Calm down, Ryan. <laughs> but it's a much more important word than that because of who is doing the choosing. Because when Paul uses the word chosen here, he means saved. Or as we're going to read in verse 10, saved from the wrath to come. And who's done the choosing? God's done this. They, the Thessalonican church, have been chosen by God. And so they will be saved. So in short, Paul's beginning his letter, not just simply with like syrupy, warm fluff, he's revealing the author of their story from beginning to end. You have been chosen, you will be saved from what's to come. But we're still at the beginning of the text. Paul is starting by appealing to good work already done, and his confidence is that God has done it. But Paul also has real evidence for their salvation. And that evidence is found after the comma I paused at, so I'm going to read the whole sentence. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because... Our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. We're going to spend some time on this verse. You see the evidence? It's the gospel. That's the evidence. But still more, it's that it seems to be proving itself genuine through multiple ways. The gospel in word and in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. Now, if you've read the New Testament before, you know that Paul loves wordiness. He loves him some run-on sentences. So it's hard to determine, maybe, at first glance, if, is he talking about four totally different things? Or maybe the words power and Holy Spirit and full conviction are kind of all the, the same thing. So I'm just going to walk through the four words and I'm going to take my best shot. And so we're going to camp out here for a little bit. First, the gospel is given in word. What does that mean? Thankfully, I think of the four, this is probably the most simple. All Paul means is that the gospel was explained in words. It was spoken or, or written. It's Simple, but but it's a it's a profound thing to say because all throughout the Bible, if you read about God, you know that He's a God of communication. He talks to people. Now sometimes 
you know, before we were even around, he spoke the universe into existence. And if you keep going, he, he spoke to man through visions and prophets. And as we read in the book of, as we read in the book of Hebrews, he finally spoke to us through Jesus Christ, who is himself described as the Word. So all Paul means by saying in word here is that to those people that God chooses, he reveals his gospel clearly in words. It's not mystical. Even when it's done through things like visions, because the gospel is presented there. Paul is a great example of this. But, but God doesn't stop with simply words, and so, so Paul doesn't either. With the word must come the next word, power. The gospel given in power. And I think what that means is that communicating words might be the means by which God shares the gospel, but it's not the end. In other words, we don't read the Bible simply to know more or to win in Bible trivia, right? Now, you might have gone to a church that did that, might have sounded more like a like a perhaps a college course where they just kind of read off a PowerPoint presentation and you kind of walk out there like knowing more about Obadiah or something. But there's something more. God intends more to happen when re, when He reveals Himself to people. And just as the Word or the Bible is given to us externally, so is the power to change. God gives the gospel through the word, but he also gives it through power because people need to change. Now all the change comes to us from God. It's not something we do internally of our own free will. It's a gift. And no example of this is more clear than the next word, the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit could get his own sermon series, so I'm going to keep it simple. And if you've gone to any variety of churches, the word Holy Spirit might kind of trigger you a little bit. Just bear with me. The Holy Spirit, according to the Bible, is God residing in us. And what happens then? Well, the synonym most used often in Scripture to help us understand the role of the Holy Spirit is the word helper. A helper. So if we just follow the train of thought of the previous two words, I think what Paul is trying to say is that the, the Holy Spirit is the method by which God's word and power change us. The Holy Spirit helps us understand what God is saying in his word. And then the Holy Spirit gives us the power to actually do it, to change. And all of this is done with our last word, conviction. There's a real weight, and there's an expectation of big change. Have you ever met anybody that like ran with gangs and then became a Christian, and they've got this like crazy testimony? Real change, conviction, big expectation. Something radical will happen when the word and power and God's Holy Spirit work in somebody. And if that's true, and I think it is, then the Word, in our case, the Bible, along with God's power and the Holy Spirit, are tied together in a bow and they're given to us. 
by people who are faithfully preaching and people who are faithfully sharing the gospel. I want to give you an example of what this might look like so you can see how it should work because there's a lot of ways in your life in which it's probably worked very terribly. It's probably gone not according to plan. Okay, say somebody comes up to you and they tell you this. You know, I prayed about it and I sense God is leading me to leave my wife and my kids and to go become a famous actor. Say they say that to you. What do you say to that person? Because if, if that hasn't happened, you just get to know more people and it's going to happen. Even when I was in youth group, there's this guy, he, he comes in, and I, I wasn't even beginning to understand the Lord at this point. I wasn't even beginning to know, but even then, something seemed kind of off. He comes in, and he gets to know like a friend of mine, who's now my, my sister-in-law, and he says to her, God told me that we were supposed to get married. What do you say to that person? What do you say to that person? Because here's the thing. If you live in America, you're not supposed to say anything to that person, right? It's from the Holy Spirit, right? You can't speak against that, right? What do you say to them? Here's what you do. You pick this up. No, you don't hit them with it. (laughs) You pick up your Bible and you slide it across the table and you say, show me. Show me. Because if it's in here and they can prove it, then it's of God. Spoiler alert, they will not be able to prove that which I just said. All that I'm saying here in all of this is that when God chooses people, he does it clearly and with power by the Holy Spirit. And so God's Holy Spirit can't be divorced from God's word. It can't be. You know, or if somebody says, Dan, I want to change, but I just can't. There's one you've probably heard before. You probably even said it. You can't. That statement can't be true. God's spirit is not divorced from God's power. For somebody to say, I can't change, is as good as them saying, God does not have the power to change me. Or in other words, God is not more powerful than sin. That makes no sense. You can't say that. Something else must be wrong. And we're going to get to that. But, here's good news. Apparently, the church of Thessalonica is in sync with God's word and God's power and God's Holy Spirit. They're thriving. They're not being caught up with all the junk I just poured out to you. They are thriving. And I think we have to conclude it's because they are living in accordance with what Paul is saying here. They're doing what he's congratulating them for. It's legit. In a sense, their lives are evidence too. But what makes Paul's case even more solid here is that Paul uses himself as evidence to close out the verse. It's not just that they're in accordance. He says, right after what we just read, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. 
In other words, Paul cites his own changed life to prove to the church, look, I'm not lying to you. God did the same thing for me. And if you know Paul's testimony, that's quite a story. He has been changed. And it's all this evidence of God's choosing and God's work in Paul's life. And in the life of the people of the Thessalonian church that will help us make sense of the next few verses because they're going to seem kind of hard to us, I think. And for us to understand this will help us make sense of a hard trend we see today not only globally, but rising in America. Affliction. But our hope is going to be theirs. The same as the Thessalonian church. That's actually God's plan to reach the world. That's how thriving happens. So what comes next here in the text, as hard as it might seem to swallow, is also evidence that God has chosen us. Point two, your faith, hope, and love will thrive. I'm going to read verses 6 through 10. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord as a result of all this power and choosing. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. And how you turn from God to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now, as I read this text, I see two kinds of thriving going on. One is outward and one is inward. Let's talk about outward first. Look at verses 7 and 8 and tell me you wouldn't want results like this. You've become an example for other churches to follow. Verse 7 and verse 8. The word of the Lord has gone forth everywhere so that Paul has nothing bad to say about you. I think any church would say, I want that. Right? All those churches I talked about in the beginning, I think they'd want that. But how is this reached? How is this goal attained? It's not through comfort. It's not through wealth. In verse 6, it comes through affliction, persecution, being mocked in public, being beaten and perhaps killed. Let me just stop and just ask this question because I think we all think this when we read this why is this how growth happens why can't we just live pain free lives and go on to a pain free eternity for us to begin to answer that question 
let's consider what's already happened to Paul. So think about before this letter, Peter and, and, and Ryan gave us some examples in the previous two weeks. The reason Paul is even writing this letter is because shortly after this church was planted, Paul was chased out of Thessalonica. Because people thought he was trying to overthrow the king. He wasn't. Long before that, Jesus told his disciples that you will be hated by all for my name's sake. I'm sending you out as lambs among wolves, he would say. This is why growth happens through affliction. It's because the world does not know God. And the world does not love God. And so God himself, Jesus, died to change that. And just think about what's happening cosmically when that happens. If you have an enemy, and in the case of the gospel, the gospel is the, the enemy of the gospel is all mankind. So if God has that kind of an enemy, and that enemy, no matter how much you work with them and plead with them and give them clear law, they will not be restored to you. They turn their hearts far away, just as Israel kept doing time after time in the Old Testament. You want reconciliation. Who's going to bridge the gap? You are. Because they don't want to. I think that's the simplest way I can explain such a huge reality. If your enemies out there of the gospel won't listen, you've got to suffer. You've got to die. And then something in them may shake them and say, why is this person dying for me? Something's different. I had people when I was in uh, college, they, how they came to know the Lord is they watched classmates who I knew who were Christians just get ripped apart by the professors publicly. And they would watch that happen and they'd say, that's not fair. Why are you doing that? Something in them would change. So that's how we thrive outward. And I, and I don't want to minimize the pain of affliction. Jesus didn't smile on the cross. So there's a real tension when that actually happens. But as Jesus has demonstrated with his life, and so has Paul, it is possible. And in some ways you might say it's inevitable. And here's how. The text speaks to how people can move from where they are to looking more like Christ and rejoicing in suffering. He does that in verses 9 through 10, because the Thessalonian church, prior to this writing, they probably looked a lot like us. It was a metropolitan, fairly wealthy to-do town. Lots of people. It was the epicenter of culture. Lots of smart people. So the text speaks to how these people moved from where they were to looking more like Christ, and we can follow their example. It's verses 9 through 10. You might call this the inward thriving. It's how outward thriving happens. Paul, again, cites their growth in 9 and 10, not just as personal transformation, but vital 
to their ability to be afflicted. So he cites their growth as vital to their ability to be afflicted. And his evidence of that growth, even in affliction, are the three virtues Peter talked about last week. He shared a sermon called Three Marks of a Thriving Church. And we can see them right here. They have grown in faith, verse 9, turning away from idols and towards God. That was the first step towards um, towards welcoming affliction. They have grown in hope. It's verse 10. Not living for this world, but living for the world to come. So, hey, this world isn't my home, so take me. It's verse 10. And those two things happening, that's how they can love their enemies. Do you catch that? Faith, hope, love? I'm not making this up. It's right here. I know 1 Corinthians 13 where they talk about faith, hope, and love and all the fruits of the Spirit. That kind of gets watered down at a lot of weddings. You kind of just think they all bleed together. But these are legit. They're right here. And so if God has chosen you, those things, faith, hope, and love, they're in you. They're thriving. They might be about this big at this point, but they can grow. That's how thriving works. So the flow of thought, again, God chooses us. All of this happening together. God chooses us, and our faith, hope, and love thrive. If I thrive, it's not because we have a great program here. It's not because the preaching's great. It's not because the worship's great. It's because God chose us. So now I'm going to ask you guys for evidences. Here's the application. Has God chosen you? How can you tell? I'm sure at least a few people in here at night are just like, am I really saved? I'm sure that's happened. I've asked that question. Has God chosen me? You can tell. Here's how you can tell. We have to work through our flow of thought backwards. We have to look at the outward behavior that Paul is championing here. Then we work back to the big question. The assurance of God choosing us. So I have three questions underneath that big question. Question number one. How do you respond to affliction? Now, if you do that joyfully in Jesus' name, praise God. Keep it up. You'll be fine. Keep it up. You know, you talk about Jesus. You know, you go to Thanksgiving dinner and they're like, hey, so what's new with you? And you're like, I'm a Christian. And they're like, what? And you kind of share and it just gets weird. But you do it. The world pushes back. But you don't shrink back. Praise God. But I am sure that some of us don't do that. You avoid those potentially awkward conversations. You resist the idea of appearing foolish so you keep your head low. You don't like standing out. Maybe you just don't like being hurt. Maybe even at some point in your life, you felt the pull to go into foreign missions in a hard field, but the comforts of home are just keeping you tethered. And you say, now nah, maybe next year. Maybe next year. Or maybe affliction disgusts you, but in a different way. Maybe you fight against affliction. Maybe you take revenge. Anybody in here feel vengeful? High blood pressure, perhaps? 
You know, maybe you're the Christian that, that attacks people. I think this is big, perhaps even especially maybe for the men here. Perhaps. But I think everybody, equal opportunity for that. If that's you, think about this text. Fighting is not bad. You're fighting the wrong battle, though. People lash out against persecutors for one reason. They're busy nurturing their idols. So people lash out against persecutors or their enemies because they're nurturing themselves. In other words, you're killing your enemies instead of killing your sinful desires. Something's going to die. When, when that stress happens and you just feel that anger, you're going to lash out probably at other people. But in either event, whether you avoid or fight against affliction, there's a deeper belief underneath that. And that's what I want to spend a good bit of our small group time talking about. And that points us to our second question. It's the belief underneath the outward behavior. So here's your second question. What are the idols that you have not turned away from? You know, if you, if you don't like looking dumb in front of people, your idol is people. You really you worship what they think above what God thinks. If you don't like being hurt or you don't like being inconvenienced, your idol is your own body. You're placing it above God. Jesus is saying, Jesus says, like, they will hate you for my name. You know, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. And you're like, no, no, they're not going to hate me. That's not for me. And those are just a couple examples. I worked out some uh, small group questions to help tease this out. But here's the thing. You know, I get, I get worked up when I, I get excited when I get up here. As you do that, like as you guys are working through this, and even thinking through what's what's here in the text, please remember that people are complex. You know? I know people who are vengeful, not just simply because they're just angry people. They've been beaten their whole lives. They've been abused. That's complicated. We don't want to just, you know, just pick out what we think is the problem and like nuke it. I mean, we got a half hour. Please don't try to solve any big problems in the next half hour. You know, work through it patiently. Grab lunch with someone. Spend time with them. Just take time and care to dig up. Let's not be rash. Because when you think about it, if, if it's true and the world is upside down, you know, if Christianity and the world are completely opposite one another, most of us have spent the majority of our lives on the wrong end. I mean, if you're older and you became a Christian as a kid and you got you broke the 50% barrier, I haven't quite done that yet. Yeah, I've been a non-Christian longer than I've been a Christian. It's going to take a while for us to see things right side up. I mean, that's the gospel. It's not that you become a Christian and all of a sudden everything clicks. It takes a while. The Bible calls it sanctification. And it's not a straight line. You want to know why? The Thessalonian church, as, as we read last week, 
by the time this letter's done and a few months pass, they're going to lose some hope. And Paul's going to write them another letter. They went that way. They went the wrong way. It's not a straight line. It doesn't have to be. And if you expect it to be, you'll, you'll probably be really discouraged. So they're going to lose sight of one of the virtues. They're going to lose sight of him. When you think about that, if there's three virtues and you lose one, and upside down is 180 degrees, think about it. You're the Thessalonian church and things seem good. And you're enduring persecution and you're being faithful. And then a few months after you read this, you start to lose hope and you're off by 60 degrees. You thought you had it figured out, but you didn't. Can you relate to that? Yeah, I thought I was growing. I thought I was figuring it out. And then I have a conversation with somebody and I realize, man, I'm not faithful. I don't have hope. I don't really love my friend. I love them because they give me stuff. You realize that and you realize, man, I thought I was making progress. But yet Paul is gentle with them. He's gentle. And yet keeps calling them to hold fast and fight to believe the gospel. So I, I want to do the same with you, and I want you guys to do the same for each other. Gentle. And that tension, to be gentle, you have to, you have to pick this up and say, show me the tension there. That pushes us to the last question, and this is the most important one. Here's the question. Will you turn from those idols to serve the living and true God? Just quoting Paul there. In other words, you get time with somebody, they work with you, and you, you come to realize, man, I really make an idol of people. But you know what? You know, I think God's okay with that. You know, you just like the taste of it so much, you just won't stop. If you ultimately will not, if there are hidden or even socially acceptable sins that you will not let go of, then you should not go to sleep assuming that God has rescued you from the wrath to come. And turning is hard. Don't get me wrong. Turning is hard. But that's okay. God wants obedience. He wants you to move in the direction of obedience. He knows you can't do perfect. He just wants you to just try fail, try again. That sounds terribly unglamorous. And that's why I think a lot of us don't like doing it. That's why the world doesn't like doing it. It's hard to do that day in and day out, but God is saying endure. Because Jesus was the most clear example of that change. Say you're a new Christian and you're still upside down almost completely. Say that's you this morning. You just became a Christian. You're right on the fence. You're 180 degrees off. Or, well, you know, you believe in Jesus. He's died for you. And so, you know, you're starting to figure it out. And so maybe you're 175 degrees off. Praise God. Praise God. But you work, and you work at it. You know, you work at it. And you meet with people for discipleship. Maybe you join a growth group. And in a year, you're down to 140 degrees. Great. 
That's good. Keep it up. I used to think, man, if I'm not all the way, I'm just not, I'm just gonna give up. Keep fighting to move in that direction. That's what, that's, that's what God wants. Diligently turn from those false idols. Yet, trusting Jesus, keep believing when you fall short or you discover something you thought you believed and you didn't. That tension is good. Author Michael Reeves says this. We naturally gravitate, it seems, towards anything but Jesus. In other words, to do otherwise, to move towards Jesus, to start to correct your vision, to correct your worldview, it's a fight. But it's a good fight. It's a necessary fight. And for more of what that fight looks like, come back next week. All this truth in a welcome chapter, and most people skip over to get to the good stuff. So to sum up the flow of thought is this. If God chooses us, our faith, our hope, and our love will thrive through our death. Many more will live. Let's pray. Dear God, there's so much in here. There's so much in your word. We haven't even begun to scratch the surface, I think. I pray for the faith and the hope and the love of my friends here and for myself. I pray that we would grow in faith, that you would help us to to turn from idols. You would help us to turn towards you, the living and true God. I pray for hope, that you would help us have such an unshakable view of eternity and of life with you, which I didn't even get to touch on here this morning, that nothing this world offers us would satisfy, and that no persecution would shake us. That through that, I pray that you would help us to love our enemies, and that through our affliction, many, many would come to know you and love you. Amen.